Um, I'm Michael Sansbury. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I was a little bit worried seeing the crowd in church today whether anyone was going to be here, so I'm glad you all came. Um, I have a, a confession to make before we start, which is um, I'm not as thoroughly, well, I haven't prepared for this in the same way that I usually prepare for uh, classes or the way I have prepared in the past. My first class, I actually did one a couple years ago on the prodigal son, and I had very extensive notes about everything I was going to say. And I think it ended up, um, one, I saw a lot of yawns in the audience, and then two, uh, at the end, I, I closed it, and I really didn't have, despite all my preparation, I didn't really have a good way to end the thing. So this time I've done, I've, I've pared it down to very short notes. <laughs> and so it's going to be a lot of riffing. And I hope, it's, I hope it works out. If not, I apologize. And um, I've only got a few more of these this summer, so you, you can skip them. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's start with a, with a, with a prayer. Um, wait, before we do that, it is Father's Day today. And I'm doing the prodigal son today, which I think I wasn't planned to, to do this on Father's Day, but I think Father's Day, I mean, obviously it's a, good, it's a good time for Father's Day because you get the grace of the father and the, and the prodigal son, and we'll talk about that. But first, I wanted to say, since it is Father's Day, um, Father's Day is a good day to, to um, express grace toward the father rather than from the father. So my wife is here, and this is directed mostly at her, but I noticed that this morning, <laughs> I noticed that this morning on Facebook, um, there were a lot of a lot of people posted messages uh, thanking their father or giving tribute to their husbands or fathers, and a lot of them were very uh, graceful towards their fathers. I saw one this morning, uh, someone I know very well, and she said uh, to her husband, "You know, best father around," and had a lot of pictures of him. And I was like, "I know that guy. He's a terrible father. <laughs> how can you? How would you dare? You know, why would you say that?" And I was like, and I was a little bit offended because I was like, "I'm." I feel like I'm a better father than that guy. You know, why didn't you, and I don't think I'm that great of a father. So why didn't you just say, you know, you know, and then I, then I thought about it. Okay, best father around. Maybe she means best father around, like, in the area while I'm posting this particular message. And that might make sense since I think he was the only one in the house at the time. So. <laughs> All right, so. All right, so let's start with a, with a quick prayer. And I didn't write one out, so I'm going I'm to wing it here. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, please be with us today. Um, uh, substitute yourself for me. Make your words my words. And be with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So this whole series is on the parables, and I actually didn't come to the first two classes, but I listened to them on the on the internet, and I think um, Gil stole a little bit what I, uh, of what I was going to say about parables to some extent, or maybe I was just going to steal it and uh, do it. But the parables to me are, are very interesting stories, and I, I like the word parable is, is a word that we don't really use a whole lot in our daily life today. So it's, it's a very kind of strange word to use to describe what are essentially stories. Um, but so I was, I was kind of thinking, well, what, what does the word parable mean? 
And uh, so I did a little bit of, of linguistic research, but I think you can think of some, some words that have this, the root, the para root in them. But the, but the most obvious parallel word in our language, I think, is, is the word parabola. And actually, um, uh, there are several dictionary definitions where they talked about parabolas. Does anyone know what a parabola is? Any, any mathematical minds? John, what is it? What is it? I don't understand it, but it's a, a form that's got uh, tilted signs to it. Uh, maybe. Anybody? It's a focus of one that has a focal point. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually here. I'll, I'll, I'll draw one, and I know this because my my children are all in uh, middle school math. But it, but a parabola is a is a graph that goes like this. Right. So if you're graphing if you're graphing uh, the equation y equals x squared, and the the equations are going to get complicated, so you might want to take notes if you. <laughs> but so so if you're if you're if you're graphing y equals x squared, it's like this because the negative, you know, whatever. That's what a parabola kind of looks like. It's like this this U-shaped graph that comes from graphing a square. And the reason it's called a parabola. Uh, is because of the it's the it's the use of this term para. So does anyone anyone know any other words that has that in it? Para. Parachute. Parachute. Well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> Could be close. But para. Para. <laughs> Actually, well, para. Para is a good one. So what are you trying to say? <laughs> so. So, but actually, I think the word pair actually does come from the same root, which is, in, it's the same root that's in compare, you know, you're, you're putting two things together. So I don't know if parachute does that or not. It might. Paranormal. That. Paranormal. I think that's a little bit, I think that's something different. Anyway, <laughs> so the word para, so, so parabola and parable, it's a, it, it's a parabola because you're, because it's, it has a mirror image uh, across the y-axis. And so the word parable basically means taking one thing and comparing it to another, like it's in a mirror. And so a word I think we, we would all use for that now, rather than a parable, is, is, is an analogy. Um, and I know, and Mike, as a lawyer, knows this a lot, is um, when you're explaining something in, in, in uh, practicing law, you're using a lot of analogies sometimes. Sometimes you, you take a case, and you compare what your situation to the case and you analogize. Or you take you know, a situation that happened and compared it to maybe a simpler situation to say, well, in this simpler situation, you would do this. So in this more complicated situation, which is like it, you should do the same thing. That's, that's an analogy. And, and um, the really good lawyers are able to say, you know, be very specific about why this side, this side is different from this side or why this analogy is better than this analogy, but it's but and you'll find if you when you talk to people about um, you know even in your regular arguments, non-legal arguments, uh, you'll use a lot of analogies to discuss situations. Like if you if you're talking and, and I know my family does the speaking of Father's Day, um, when we have political discussions, it's a uh, Thanksgiving, and um, you'll spend a lot of time arguing. Well, well, what about, you know, if you were in this situation, how would you act or, or that sort of thing? And you use a lot of analogies to argue. But 
the effectiveness of the analogy really depends on the other person having an understanding of what you're talking about. You know, you can, if they can come to this situation and say, okay, when you're explaining the analogy to them, you say, here's a situation that you would be familiar with and you would have your own emotional or, or uh, intellectual reaction as, as to how you should react in this situation. And they would say, okay, I can bring that and then apply it to this new set of circumstances that I'm not familiar with. And I think that, that when you read the parables, you see that a lot because Jesus uses situations that the people who are listening to him would be familiar with. Uh, but they're often situations that we have no idea you know, what he's talking about. We have to kind of do a lot of explanation about, um, uh, you know, to kind of get in the mode of, of what exactly does he mean when he's talking about this. And I think the, the Good Samaritan which we're, we're, that Ron talked about last week is a good example of that because if you don't know what a Samaritan is, or you don't understand the political circumstances, the story really loses a lot of its of its context, and you you have a hard time really digesting what uh, is being explained in the story. But once you have the context, and I think the people that were listening to it had the context, they would understand a little bit better um, uh, what uh, what Jesus was talking about. All right, um, all right. So the the story the the parable for today is the prodigal son, and uh, before we get into it, I, I wanted to make this quick comment. The Jesus Seminar, who knows what the Jesus Seminar is? I know you do. Yeah, I know Joe does. So, th- so the Jesus Seminar is a group of scholars, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a group, a group of scholars who sort of sits around uh, who study the Bible, and then uh, they apparently have some kind of meetings or conferences where they go and they vote on whether the um, saying that is in the Bible uh, that they're focused on is actually an authentic saying. And if they think it's really authentic, they put a red, uh, red, right? Red ball in the voting thing. If they think it's not authentic, they put a black ball in it. If they think it's may or may not be authentic, they put a pink one in there. So I looked this morning, and the parables of the prodigal son did not make the top five, I'm sorry to say, of parables that the Jesus Seminar deems to be authentic, but it was deemed somewhat likely to have been said by Jesus. So, so take that for what it's worth. Um, all right, so prodigal son, and I'm going to read it, but not yet. Um, going back to, to what words mean, does anyone, does, who knows what the word prodigal means? Anyone have any guesses? Joe probably does, but he's holding back. Joe told me this morning that he was going to be in my class, which may, is making me nervous. Wasteful. How'd you know that? <laughs> all right. So, all right. Fine. I'll confess my own ignorance. Um, I used to think prodigal son meant like really smart, like a like a prodigy or something, right? Um, but in fact, it means it means wasteful. And usually, and sometimes the parable is called the lost son. But I like the pro- I, and the prodigal son really, I think, because of that, you know, because people don't really understand what the word prodigal means anymore. I kind of like wasteful son better. Um, and so does anyone, before we read the parable, have any ideas why it might be called the wasteful son? He wasted his inheritance. Right. Right. So he wasted his, his so the, the younger son gets the inheritance. He goes off. He spends it on wine, women, and song. Uh, and he comes back to his father. Uh, but, yeah, so he wasted wasted his inheritance. Um, 
All right. So let's let me read the the parable. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but. Um, All right, so does anyone remember the context of, of what was going on when Jesus um, told this parable? Well, they, yeah, I think that was right. They're, they're uh, having dinner. It's Pharisees and tax collectors having dinner together. And Jesus tells him the parable of the of the lost coin, right? Well, he tells the parable of the lost sheep first, and then he tells the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. So, is he describing the kingdom of God and all others? That- well, no. I mean, here's what. So here's the setup before Jesus starts in the parables. Uh, it's Luke 15. It says now the tax collectors. And sinners, and in this, in the NIV puts sinners in quotation marks, which is kind of strange. I'm sure that's not in the in the uh, Greek. Um, so now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them," and that's what that's prompts him to to tell this story. So this is the third the third one. So Jesus continued after the other parables. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son, or to be called your son. Excuse me. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. 
he was lost and is found. Here ends the reading. All right, so we've got the the wasteful son who um, goes off and and squanders the inheritance. Uh, But there's another son in the story, right? The older brother. Is he a wasteful son or not? Mike says no. He's a law keeper. (laughs) Good. All right. Anyone have a different opinion on that? Okay. All right. Well, so so Mike says keeper of the law, the the younger brother. Um, and to talk about that, I'll do I'll, I'll talk about my own analogy. The uh, a few weeks ago, there was an article in the New York Times about this couple who owns a castle in upstate New York. So it's a it's a like a old National Guard armory that they purchased and renovated and, and were trying to flip. And before that house, they'd flipped in a bunch of other houses. And then they got caught in the recession with this castle that they live in. Uh, they were hoping they would be able to sell it for big bucks. But they had this huge you know castle. It cost them, I think they said it would cost them $1,000 a month to heat and cool every year. And so they're now realizing that they might have bitten off a bit more than they could chew in, in, in trying to renovate this castle. And in the course of the article, that, that's kind of an interesting story, but in the course of the article, the guy said something which has stuck with me, and I, and I I've tried to figure out why, but he says this. He's talking about, you know, he and his wife moved to this town to renovate this castle. They homeschool their children, you know, all that, because they're going from place to place flipping these. And they have careers where they can be in different places to do them. He's like a... I think he actually distributes music. He's like a music distributor, and his wife does something else. She's like a financial manager or something. Um, and he said he had this quote, which I thought was very telling. He says, "Our whole life is a cost-benefit analysis." Now, when it, that when I read that, I felt immediately depressed. <laughs> I was like, "How sad is that? That your whole life is a cost-benefit analysis?" I mean, think of think of. Uh, everything in your life that is not driven by a cost-benefit analysis. And one of those is um, exactly what the prodigal son story is about, which is parenthood. I mean, can you imagine? And then they had, these, this couple had two, I think, two children. And I was like, if my, if, if my life were a cost-benefit analysis with respect to my children, then my children would be dead, right? I mean, <laughs> how am I going to, how am I going to keep them, uh, you know, when, where do children, where do the benefits of children outweigh the costs? They never do. Um, or even, and, 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 I, and also they're married. So, I mean, what if your marriage was driven by a cost-benefit analysis, right? I mean, Tamara would have gotten rid of me long ago, right? So, so, so the older son in this story is kind of like, is, 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 is hoping for his father to apply a sort of cost-benefit analysis to the to his son, who is has has wasted his life, or wasted the inheritance. Um, but really, the way the father reacts is is actually this is another analogy, um, uh, an article that I that I saw about uh, the phenomenon of overgiving. Anyone familiar with this? All right, so. Uh, 
Elizabeth Gilbert. Does anybody know who Elizabeth Gilbert is? Yeah. Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, well, who said it? Yeah. She wrote a book called Eat, Pray, Love. Has anyone read it? You don't have to admit it if you have. <laughs> so so she, she writes this book uh, about, and I haven't read it, uh, I have to confess, but she she gives up her career, kind of travels all over the world and, you know, finds inner peace after eating in various places, having love affairs and, and doing all this traveling. Is that accurate? Anyone who's read it? Yeah. Yeah. So it, so it was it was a huge bestseller and then it was made into a movie with Julia Roberts. And I don't know how well the movie actually did, but it had Julia Roberts in it. So I'm sure I'm sure lots of people saw it. Um, so Elizabeth Gilbert after all this, ended up making a lot of money. Right? She suddenly went from kind of nomadic writer to a very, a pretty wealthy woman. Um, and so, she, as she tells, and she's writing this article about herself, she began to engage in what she called overgiving, which is um, whenever she would go out with her friends or family or, or people that she had known kind of in her past life, she would start to pay for things. She would start to buy them, you know, when they would go out to eat, she would buy them meals. Uh, when it was their birthday or uh, there was some sort of celebration, she would buy them really fancy gifts, uh, thinking that she was being nice, right? But how did people, how would, you, how would you react to that if you suddenly had a friend who, you know, was kind of on your same economic level and then suddenly starts giving you all these fancy gifts? What do you feel? Yeah, you feel well. You feel yeah. You feel guilt, resentment. You can't because whenever someone gives you a gift, what does that make you want to do? Right. I mean, you invite them over to your house, or they invite you over to their house. You think, oh, you know, we should have them over sometime. Or, you know, someone gives you, oh, here, here's a, here's a nice. It's Christmas time. Is especially like that. You know, oh, here's a gift. I just, you know, something special I picked up for you. And you think, oh, yeah. I, I have your gift back at the house. I didn't know you were going to give this to me today. <laughs> then you go home and you scramble and, and try to figure out something nice to, to kind of pay them in return. Well, the problem for, for, for Elizabeth Gilbert, and I think she was, it was completely innocent on her part, was she would give these fancy gifts feeling, you know, I don't, I, she had the money. She didn't care. She wanted to be nice to these people, and they immediately had this obligation. So her friends stopped hanging out with her. So, you know. And she was wondering, well, why? I'm being so nice, and you know, I have I don't feel like they should do this to me. But they had this own their own internal reaction to it. Um, so Elizabeth Gilbert was an overgiver, and that's and that's sort of like the the father is in this story. You know, he is he is an overgiver. You know, he gives. He says, you know, you don't. My son wants his inheritance. He's not entitled to his inheritance, but I'm going to give it to him. He wastes his inheritance. He goes off and wastes it. Well, I'm just going to give him a party. You know, he just keeps giving to these to the kid, uh, and the kid, of course, I mean, I think feels guilty for squandering it. I don't. I'm not sure he has the same reaction of, well, I feel bad that you're you're giving me all this stuff. At least if he does, we don't we don't know it in the story. Um, so these are the kind of the two the two worldviews here. You got the cost benefit analysis worldview and, the, and this overgiving sort of worldview. Going back to the to the analogy point, though, I, you know, in reading this story, it struck me that the that the analogy that Jesus is using here is something that might not 
hit us in the same place as it hit his his listeners. Um, you know, in, in in this in this sort of day and time, I think that that people hear about giving you know over giving to their children or giving their children their inheritance. You think, sure. I mean, I you know all I think people especially now feel like I should be giving my kids everything that I can. No one is governed by this cost-benefit analysis with children. I'm going to spend everything I can on my children. No one really worries about inheritance and what will be left at the end of their lives because their children will become, you know, they hope, productive people. Or if not, you know, who cares? I'm dead. They'll be able to take care of themselves. Um, but the but inheritance to the to the listeners was a very a very different thing. Inheritance at this time at this point in time was really the thing that parents gave their children. I mean, I think for us, we feel like if we give them an education or, um, you know, enrichment when they're young, piano lessons, all that, we're doing what we can as parents to make our children the best they can be. But in the ancient world, it was really your legacy was determined by what kind of inheritance do you leave for your children? What are they, what's going to be left um, when you're gone? And you see it, I think, in, especially in, in ancient Rome, um, around the emperors and, and people like that who, who are very concerned about their own children inheriting the empire. Um, you know, the, the whole the idea of marriage and, and, and giving inheritance or a dowry to your daughter was all really about this inheritance idea. Maybe, well, it occurs to me now, but like Downton Abbey, if you, if you watch Downton Abbey, it's really about the inheritance of this estate, although it's a more recent time. But the inheritance was a really, a really big deal. Um, in a way that, it, that it's not that, I mean, it may be a big deal to some of you, but not, not to me. So this idea that, that one, this, and well, the second part of inheritance, of course, is that you only get it when. I mean, your children only get your inheritance when you're dead. Um, and here the son is, is, is saying, give me the estate now. And so I think that, that the reaction to that, I mean, now we sort of um, see it as, well, okay, I'm just giving you now what you might get later. You know, you, you have, I have this much money in my bank account. I've given you half of it. It's different. But then I think this, this idea that he would ask for it as inheritance was basically, you know, telling his father, I want you to be dead. You know, you need to be dead. And give me half of your estate. So that's, I mean, just think of the that idea very, very um, offensive. Uh, and then not only does he does he ask for the share of the estate, he then goes and takes his father's greatest legacy and um, and wastes it on 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 wine, women, and song, as we said. And then his father comes back and says, you know, he comes back here having taken his father's greatest um, legacy, what he, what his father was going to have left waste it, and then has the nerve to come crawling back and say, you know, take me in. And the father reacts to this by saying, what? Yeah, sure. Welcome back. We're going to have a party. And I think that, that, in the, that the offensiveness of this idea is kind of is, is lost on us a little bit because of the idea of the inheritance. Because of the idea that, I mean, some of us have either directly in our own families or in families of relatives uh, children who have been prodigal sons, right, who have run off to 
uh, I think as, as Paul's all used to say, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or wherever, <laughs> and, uh, and then come back and, and um, you know, spent years out there kind of wasting their time, wasting their education, wasting money, and then coming back. Um, you know, the idea was pretty common, but I think it was very uncommon in the, in the ancient world. And so the, the offensiveness of this idea, and, and this is really, you know, Jesus is at this dinner with Pharisees who are all, you know, all good people, basically, right? People who all, you know, are doing good estate planning for their children, who are, you know, uh, people, but also, you know, make sure that their children don't misbehave and all that idea. And, and Jesus is saying here, you know, to hear it, well, this is what God is like. If you mess up completely, if you if 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 um, uh, you know you you murder your father, you waste your inheritance, um, and then come back, then you're going to be welcomed with open arms, and we're going to have a celebration and, and a party for you. So, so th- I think th- the people hearing this idea would be offended by it in a way that perhaps we're not offended by it now. So. Um, so I was trying to, to, to come up with an idea of, of, of a similar type scenario uh, that would be equally offensive um, for us. So, um, and the video, we're having video problems. Is that? That's a fire now. All right. So before we get to that, while it's firing up, what are some um, what are some things that would be? Well, let me ask you this: Is there a line that one of your children could cross? So I want I want everybody to raise their hand and answer this question. What is the line that your that your children could cross that would cause you to not welcome them back to the party? No. <laughs> All right, good, good. So, so going for Auburn rather than Alabama. Okay. Coming a Buddhist. Coming a Buddhist. Okay, good. Um, for me, I think it was pretty. I think if 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 uh, my mom always said to me if if uh, I ended up going to jail to not even bother calling her, she would just leave me there. So, which I thought was a fairly minor line because I mean you can get put in jail for anything. Um, all right, yeah, we can't really see that, can we? As an older father, I'll say that line moves. As, yeah. So, 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 how does it move? Does it get? Once I cross it, he moves it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Thanks be to God. Yeah. That's right. Oh, that's fine. Well, that, put, do that again so we can see, at least see it. Yeah. All right. So, does anybody know who this guy is? Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer. Who is Jeffrey Dahmer? No, no. He didn't put him in his basement. He put him where? <laughs> his refrigerator. And and why did he? And so what did he do with him when he was when they were in his refrigerator? Why did he put him in the fridge? Exactly. Okay. So offensive. If your child was Jeffrey Dahmer, could you still love your child? 
So Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. So Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he was a. He was a. He lived in. Where was he? Illinois. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Somewhere in the Midwest. Okay. And uh, he, uh, for uh, like 16 years, I think, um, murdered young men and uh, kept pieces of them in his refrigerator and from time to time ate them. And the reason why, he says, which is actually very interesting given like, uh, what he's about to say, the reason why he, he ate the young men, he said, is because he, wanted to, he, he felt like they would try to escape him. Um, and so he would eat them to, to make them a part of him, and so he could keep a part of them in his, in his freezer and make them stay, which is, uh, you know, very, very interesting. So if so, how do you think uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, parents uh, felt about this? How would you feel about it if you were a parent? Well, at a minimum, you would expect him to be dealt with, but you would expect him to be punished. Yeah, sure. Sure. You wouldn't want this guy out walking the streets, for sure. Right. Is that a question? Yeah. Pretty close. All right. So, so in the late, so Jeffrey Dahmer died in the, I think the mid-90s. He was actually murdered in prison. But before that happened, he gave a series of interviews, which are fascinating, to uh, Stone Phillips. Y'all know Stone? Stone? He's, and you'll see Stone on here in a second. He's a very put together and intrepid uh, news magazine reporter. And he, he talks to Dahmer, and there's someone else in the, in the interview with Dahmer uh, who you'll see in the first few seconds, and that person is Jeffrey Dahmer's father, sitting right next to him in the series of interviews. So um, as you would expect, his father actually wrote a book about this, and uh, in the book he kind of, I mean, for, for, you know, as any of us would, he kind of blames himself a little bit for Jeffrey turning out like he did. And Dahmer, in this, in this series of interviews, is asked about this. And this is a short, it's, it's about a five and a half minute clip. Um, but it's, it has a lot of stuff in there that's, that I don't want to talk about at all. Um, but it has some stuff in there that I think that I, that I want to talk about a little bit. So sit back and enjoy it. See what, how, how Jeffrey Dahmer um, talks about this and, and what he's, what he's uh, become since he went to prison. I feel it's uh, wrong for people who commit crimes to try to shift the blame onto somebody else, onto their parents or onto their, their upbringing or certain living circumstances. I, I think that's just a cop-out. And uh, my parents, my relatives, had no knowledge of what I was doing. They're absolutely not responsible for any of it in any way. And uh, That's his father. I take full responsibility. But you, but you understand that what That's Stone Phillips. Your father to ask himself all kinds of questions. That's true. Where, where did I go wrong? Was there something I could have said or done to have prevented this? Right. Did I in some way create or contribute to the terrible acts my son committed? I understand that. I, I just get uh, angry with other people who, who think that uh, they have a right to... Uh, to somehow try to blame my parents for what happened. That's not right at all. No one has the right to do that because they're totally innocent. They had no knowledge of it. And uh, that angers me. But parents just naturally, I mean, any parent that really cares, they just, 
first of all say, oh, gee, I feel guilty. You know, I, there's just feelings of guilt. What happened? What did I do? What could I have done? So that's a normal parental reaction. Your dad has wondered about all kinds of things, from the medication that your mom was on during her pregnancy, to the fact that you were exposed to violent arguments in the home from an early age and continuing, to the possibility that he might have passed on some genetic propensity for obsession or violent behavior. Does any of that ring true to you? I can see why he'd wonder about those things, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're all excuses because I didn't feel accountable to anybody. I didn't feel that I had to to uh, face what I had done ever. And uh, so you, you have, there comes a point where a person has to has to be accountable for what he's done. Can't go can't go around making excuses, uh, blaming other people or other things. So I, I alone am the one who's responsible for what's happened. Let me ask, when did you first feel that, that everyone is accountable for their actions? Well, thanks to you for, for sending uh, that uh, creation science uh, material. We're not talking because about that. I always, I always <laughs> believe the, uh, the lie that uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life and uh, started reading books about how, that show how evolution is. It's just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that I, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Growing up, did you feel that you were accountable to your dad or to your mom as the authority? Yes, I did. in the house? Yes, I did. I mean, they, they didn't let me. All right. So, how do you feel about that? Was he on medication? Was he on medication? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know if he was. If he was. All right. So Jeffrey Dahmer, cannibal, says, "I'm now a Christian." I guess it makes some sense, right? I mean, cannibalism is a little bit a part of Christianity. I mean, yeah. Alright, sorry. That was not a good joke. <laughs> so, um, Alright, so how's it so anybody have any reactions to that? It feels it feels a little gross, doesn't it? Sure, sure. And why is that? You get off. Right. Right. And it's a little bit strange the way he sets it up because he says, you know, everyone is gonna be accountable. And if, if that were true, I would think that he would have a lot to be concerned about himself, right? I mean, he's got a lot to be, to be accountable for. And he's, 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 um, he's exhibit A for the sentence. You know, and I'll say, oh, yeah, go out and do whatever you want. Right. Well, it kind of makes you know why the Catholics can't have the purgatory. You know, it makes you feel better if you think, right. well, he's not getting to heaven yet. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. He's going to, he has to, he has to be held accountable, right? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was sitting too. Mm -hmm. I 
might not have done what he did. Right. But I've sinned. Right. Right. And it's hard to equate, you know. Uh, yeah, how, how do we equate levels of sin? Right. I, I'm glad I'm not the judge. Right. 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 It's Frank's sermon to the test. Right. So Frank's sermon today, I mean, I thought that was that was good. I told Gil on the way here. I was like, well, nothing to, needed, you know, to say at this point. But so so Frank in his sermon today talked about you know grace alone as being as being um, uh, the key to salvation. Uh, so I mean, I guess th- this kind of thing really kind of puts it, puts that to the test for me. I mean, it's a gut check about something like that. Struggling with what's the line between being careless and being criminal mm-hmm. in a situation like this. The prodigal son was careless. Yeah. He was foolish. Mm-hmm. He didn't exercise wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I think you can say the same for the criminal as well. The criminal is something that goes beyond just the lack of exercising wisdom. Sure. It, it actually is, um, it violates the community. Mm-hmm. At, at some level. And I'm just curious if that's different, if it sheds any light on how we think about the, the parable of the law of grace. I, I'm not sure I know myself where I'm going. Well, I mean, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right from kind of a, a, what you would call a first use of the law perspective. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone would argue that Jeffrey Dahmer needs to be out on the streets. Um, you know, he, he, he did the crime. He's got to do the time, right? But but the question of 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 is he going to be is he going to go to heaven is his belief enough is his faith enough you know i think everything we we read and we're taught says yeah but it's hard to to kind of accept that even if it is a, a crime i mean even if it's murder versus uh, versus just you know wasting your dad's cash they're different yeah. sins but Right. Right. Exactly. That's why he, the father welcomed his son back. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. The prodigal son had murdered somebody. Mm-hmm. I got that. You, you see where I'm going with this? And then came home to the father. The father could still love them. Yeah. But Israel still has to have justice. Right. And that's a that's a difficult thing to wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. The ju- the question of justice still controls the community even mm-hmm. if the father loves it. Mm-hmm. But of course he didn't do that in the parable. Right. He doesn't do that. Right. But the other son, but that's the expectation of the other son is that the prodigal yeah, will be held accountable and right. he's offended when he's not. Right. Makes me think of the, the apostle in the movie, which you're talking about, Jason, Robert Duvall, where he did kill somebody. He does kill yeah. Both careless but also criminal in a fit of rage. There's a context to it. But that great last scene where he gets pulled off preaching the gospel, but on his way to the wall, mm-hmm. literally yeah. into a you know flashing light police car. Mm-hmm. I thought of that <laughs> in this story, and the real focus of the story is, I think, on the older son. The, the older son. Mm-hmm. Uh, is really the Pharisee. Right. Right, and I think that's where that's you know Jesus is at this dinner with Pharisees, and he's telling this story, and and the older son's reaction is really the right reaction, right? I mean, even even uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer says, 
people should be held accountable, right, for their actions. And the, and the older son's reaction is, Dad, you need to hold him accountable for that. The older it, son expects that he would have been held accountable the same way that right. he does. Right, which is why he's such a good son, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> why he's, he's staying around and not doing it. Right. I think the part of it that to me is that you can understand why the Bible says that the gospel is considered silly mm-hmm. by certain intellectual type right. folks. It's a stumbling block. Right. People. right. It's just silly. Foolishness. Foolishness. Yeah. What do you mean you know, he can walk? It's right. Just, and I think that's I think that's where our society is today. It's just a silly. It's just silly. Right. It just makes no sense. Right. And the, and I think in part and in, in I think Christians do themselves a disservice when we say no, it's not, you know. Right. I mean, because I think, I think it's helpful to say, you know, oh, yeah, it is, it is silly. That's why it, can only, it has to be true, because <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's, it's just it's too ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, given our, our sort of view of the, of the world. The world view, I guess, you brought up. Right. All right. Um, you did a great job putting this clip in the story, seeing the father... Literally on the right hand of Jeffrey Dahmer, right. about that being the wasteful mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. And he really spun out a lot. Yeah. Good thoughts. Yeah. Well, he, he goes on and, and Stone Phillips, you know, follows up about this the Christianity thing. Um, he doesn't really, you know, cross-examine him on it, but um, Jeffrey makes very clear that he is he feels himself to be a, a believing believing Christian. Did he get that through his father sending him written books and things? Yeah, well, that's what he. That's what he. Yeah, he, he said he entered through the, this uh, creation science idea, which I don't really want to <laughs> talk about that. All right, well, I have a clip that, that's really funny that kind of takes the sting out of Jeffrey Dahmer. Do we have time, or should we not do it? Sure. All right. Well, here's if if anyone needs to leave, go ahead. But it's like a it's like a minute it's like a two and a half minute clip, but it's a. Uh, it really kind of it kind of brings this whole idea of, of, of parenthood, and uh, and it has a little bit of, of Jeffrey Dahmer uh, follow up in it to some extent, and it has a couple. I should I should say this before I play it. Gil said I could have two to three curse words in in this in this class, and it has two of them in here. Um, that what's that? It's Louis C.K. Yeah, so you know kind of what to expect, but it's it's. It's uh, it's of the of the excrement variety. So, but if you if that offends you, you might want to go ahead and leave and not watch. Uh, all right, everybody's staying. Right. Today is a good day to die, Valhalla. All right. It's hard to make kids any parent, what's the hard part? Is it looking after their health care? Is it making sure that their education? No, it's just being with them on the floor while they feed the children. It's just, they re-clipper the big red dog to you. They're waiting 50 minutes of pain. I hate Clifford the big red dog. <laughs> There's 50 books about Clifford the Big Red Dog. 50 books. There's 7 books about Narnia. <laughs> the birth and death of a nation, and mice with swords, and a lion who's a god. They did it in 7 books. 50 books about Clifford. <laughs> and they all tell the exact same story. Look how big this dog is. <laughs> 
Lights. All right. Thank you all. Uh, yeah. You know that. <laughs>